0: Okay, so welcome back to the sermon series on Acts, or welcome for the first time if you're just joining us. Uh, We have gone through about Acts chapter six and a half, and um, at this point, with the church, God has founded the church um, through the death of Jesus Christ and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So, we this is Church One Hundred and One. Okay, the very first, and it is vibrant. It is alive. These are people that are amazing in their love, their service, their activity for God. Um, everything you, you dream a church can be from unity to just passion. It's all right here in the first church. Now, some, something else that's been very interesting about this group of, of people is not just that they're a really alive, vibrant, energetic church, but it's that they're also a strong church. We have seen this group of people successfully repel three direct attacks of the devil. Um, the first time, the devil comes after them through persecution. What does this first church do? They pray. They come together and they pray intently through the night, fervently. They seek the face of God. They just throw all of their trust, all of their desperation on, on, on God, and they are delivered. It's a miracle. It's beautiful. Um, The second time they are attacked, it is when hypocrisy and deceit slithers its way into the church through a couple of church people, and these leaders rise up in the strength and uh, and the truth and the love of God, and they speak the truth and they speak the love of God, and once again the devil is he's gone, and then we have the third time, which is a lot more subtle. The enemy comes at them through distraction. They are tempted and pressured to, to, to just be distracted, to stop doing what they're doing and attend to, you know, the crisis of the moment and the tyranny of the urgent. But in, in the, uh, this case, uh, we talked about last time, what, what does the leadership do? They say, God has called us clearly to this. We are going to stay focused on it. They raised up other leadership to handle the problem. And once again, They are victorious. And so, we we have a church that has successfully stood its ground for God in Jerusalem. And so, you all know what it's time for now. Now, it's time for a new adventure. Since they are established in Jerusalem, now God is going to launch the church out on adventure and they will go out and proclaim the message of Jesus Christ to the world. And that sounds really exciting until we stop to consider what new adventures are like in our life. Anything you do something new, uh, something unprecedented, you know, you you go somewhere you've never been before. Well, we all know that, you know, I mean, it may be great in the end, but typically something new comes and, you know, it it comes with a lot of struggle. It comes with a lot of heartache, you know. A lot of times stuff like this is inconvenient. You know, there are setbacks. It's always true with anything that we ever come to appreciate. My father worked for GE um, for, golly, for most of his, all of his working life. And um, so, my dad is a big fan of Thomas Edison. Now, we have some evidence of Thomas Edison in the room. Anybody guess what it is? Just look up the light bulb, right? Isn't the light bulb an amazing adventure? Don't, don't you appreciate the light bulb? You know, we all do. Do you know how many times it took Thomas Edison um, to get the light bulb Right? Believe it or not, 1,000 is the number. Now, it could have been 980, it could have been, you know, 1,020. I don't, you know, 1,000 might just be a round number, but 1,000 times to get the light bulb right. And again, we all appreciate it, but how frustrating must that have been for Thomas Edison? 1,000 times of doing this. Well, the good news is we don't even have to wonder how frustrating it was because the question was put to him. Once a reporter, when when he unveiled this thing, a reporter asked him, Mr. Edison, I guess it wasn't Dr. Edison, Mr. Edison, how did you feel, how did it feel to fail 1,000 times at this? Edison's reply was brilliant, okay? He said, I didn't fail 1,000 times. The light bulb was an invention with 1,000 steps. Now, that, that's a great perspective, isn't it? It's just a phenomenal perspective. And I tell you that because, believe it or not, Acts chapter 6, the second half of it, and Acts chapter 7, it is the beginning of something brand new, okay? It, it is the beginning of something unprecedented that we have not seen before in the first church. And believe it or not, it's world missions, Acts 6 and Acts 7, these are actually the seeds or the rumblings or the very beginning of world missions. But we could read through chapter six and chapter seven and we could come to a conclusion. And the conclusion is, this thing was a failure. Acts 6 and Acts 7 are a complete failure. Why? Spoiler alert, because the lead person in Acts 6 and Acts 7 gets killed. He dies. Today, we are going to plunge in and look at the death of one of God's best and one of God's brightest. And it is a tragic death. It's a heartbreaking death. But see, from God's perspective, and by the way, God is the inventor of world missions, all right? From God's perspective, from God's perspective, the death of this man is a necessary step to the success of world missions This man has to die for this thing called missions to take off and to be worth something. And so the whole thing began actually in the last sermon, whether you knew it or not, in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, when we met the very first deacon, a man called Stephen. And according to the Word of God, you know, this guy just didn't get elected to something and, you know, now he's just going to go out and do a little bit of service In Acts 6-5 and picking uh, and kind of reading along in Acts 6-8, we read that Stephen was a man who was full of God's grace and power. He was a man who performed great wonders and signs among the people. So this man, Stephen, when I call him one of God's best and brightest, I mean, here's the guy, he's got Christ's character in him. You know, he's got Jesus' heart. He moves toward people like Jesus. And when it comes to the miraculous power of God, he delivers. This guy, Stephen, is something else, y'all. He's legit. Spiritually speaking, Stephen is the real deal. He's an amazing guy. And the thing about Stephen is that he, you know, I said a minute ago, you know, world missions is this unprecedented brand new thing. Stephen himself is an unprecedented brand new thing. Because in Scripture, we have never seen anybody like this guy before. Stephen isn't amazing, in other words, just because he has a great first name, right? And he spells it the right way. That's not what makes him amazing. Stephen, apart from Jesus Christ himself who did this, and apart from the apostles who walked with Jesus and knew Jesus We've never seen anybody like this before. Stephen is the first of his kind. He is a radical change from the norm. And again, don't get me wrong. The people in the first church are incredible. They're fervent. They're passionate. They're in love with God. They're out there serving. They're proclaiming Jesus Christ. But here is a man who is the whole package. He just steps onto the scene and he's like Jesus himself. He is a radical change. And here is the thing about change, okay? There is a thing. Okay, the thing about change is this. We always celebrate change after the fact. Oh, isn't the light bulb wonderful? Or think about moving. All this move we made seven years ago, you know, is wonderful. But what's it like in, in, in the moment? Change is usually something nobody celebrates in the moment. Nobody appreciates. And we see that in verse 9 when we read these words. Opposition arose against Stephen from members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, the first time I read that, here here was my thought, okay? My thought was, that cannot possibly be right because these guys are free men, right? I mean, they're free, they're open, they're relaxed, they're not rigid. I mean, they're even known as the free men. They They ought to embrace something fresh and something new. That's what free people do. But Here's the problem. Um, th- that name actually has nothing to do with their hearts and their minds. It has nothing to do with their attitudes or their ways of thinking. Freedmen just points back to their history. That all of these guys either used to be former slaves or they're the sons of former slaves. So, literally, what you have with the synagogue of the free men is a bunch of guys who stepped out of physical bondage. And they've landed right into, in, into, into spiritual bondage. And they prove it by arguing with Stephen and arguing against Stephen. They come at Stephen hard. And what they do with all this arguing is they actually rile God up. And they prompt God to fire a warning shot across their bow. They argued, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave Stephen as he spoke. So if you're these guys, here's what ought to be obvious. I'm arguing against Stephen, but I think I'm opposing something else or someone else who is a whole lot bigger than this man. In other words, these guys need to put their pitchforks and their torches down, they need to back off, they need to go do something else, you know, launch a V, well, we don't want them launching a VBS. Go play checkers or chess, do something, get away from Stephen, God is on the side. But instead, they don't do that. These freedmen press the attack even harder, but now they do it like true cowards. In verses 11 through 14, they secretly persuade some other men to lie against Stephen. Now, we don't know exactly how they did this, but typically this kind of thing goes down in one of two ways. Usually it's something like, hey, look, Here's like 20 shekels. So here's what we want you to do. Go out and, and run over to the temple. Tell the priest that you heard Stephen speaking against the temple, against the law, speaking against God, speaking against Moses. And these guys do it. Okay, they're patsies, right? No offense if your first name is Patsy. These guys are a bunch of patsies and they run straight over to the temple and they deliver this false message. And the false message... Lands and it really works. Everybody gets riled up. Everybody gets frustrated and riled and furious. The people, the elders, the teachers of the law, and the next thing you know, Stephen, who has done nothing but step out like Jesus Christ to a hurting world, proclaiming and performing the power and the and, and, you know the word of God and the power of God. Next thing you know, he's been arrested as a spiritual perp. He's been taken to court. And now he's on trial. And the the false witnesses, they do their part. They say, this man, Stephen, he speaks against the holy place. He speaks against the law of Moses. He says this Jesus Christ is going to destroy the temple. He's going to change all of the customs of Moses. And all of it is just a bold pack of lies. There, There isn't a bit of truth in it. And so, God delivers a second warning shot across their bow, and we read this. The testimony ends. Everyone looking at Stephen in that moment saw that his face was like the face of an angel. In other words, God turns the spotlight on Stephen, okay? God's glory hits Stephen. He begins to radiate The beauty, the purity, you know, the the Shekinah glory of God. And what's so ironic about this is there's only one other person in all of Scripture who ever radiated the glory of God. Who was it? Moses. And they just said he was talking junk about Moses. So it's as if God is saying, oh, okay, you want some Moses? Oh, I will give you some Moses people. And again, the point is, guys, back off. Walk away, put your weapons down. Leave this man alone. So the message is delivered, but the message is not received by by this religious crew. So in Acts 7-1, the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges against you true? And then Stephen delivers his reply. 52 verses of reply some commentators read this and they say, "Man, this is the most rambling, just disconnected. It's just because it is a whopper. You know, fifty-two verses. Come on, that's a whopper. That, that's like a that's that, that's like a Will Bond size response, right? You know, an Adam White's Carver size response. I mean, it's a, just a big, big response. But in all of this, in all of these verses, Stephen only talks about two things, and they are the two charges against him: the temple and the law. That's all he's talking about in all of this. Now, just so you know, the temple is a hot button for the Jewish community, okay? It, and it's a hot button for many Christians. And I'll tell you where it comes from. First, King, First Kings 9-3, God says this, I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart Will always be there in the temple. This is a promise from God to meet with his people in worship in the temple. And I'll tell you this, it is awesome. 1 Kings 9.3 is a stellar, stunning, astounding, I'm just going to keep going with adjectives. It's just the most glorious reality. It's good news for mankind. But the problem here is that the religious establishment takes this beautiful thing that God has said and they twist it. They twist it to mean this is the only place that God will ever meet with his people. This is the only sacred spot for us to connect with God. And I love what John Stott says about this. His response to to, to this warp theology is just phenomenal. John Stott says this, the Old Testament fathers never imagined for a minute that God would ever be imprisoned in a building, that God would ever be held in place by some kind of a material structure. And y'all, that's Stephen's argument for like 48 verses. This is what he says again and again and again. Uh, He goes on to bring up four Old Testament heroes, okay? Four that, that all of these guys know Um, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and David. And he says, I'm going to prove this to you. In verses 2 through 8, he says, okay, let's take Abraham. What did God say to Abraham? He said to him, leave your country and your people and go to the land that I will show you. And Abraham does. And somebody goes with Abraham. It's not his wife It's not everybody in the caravan. God goes with him. Well, where do they go? They go to Haran, they go to Canaan, and they go to Egypt. In verses 9 through 16, he brings up Joseph. Now Joseph is someone we've all heard of, and Joseph's life exclusively in Scripture is pretty much set in one location. What is the one location? It's Egypt. God meets him there. He empowers him there. He unveils his glory there. He he, he reaches out with saving power, but it's all in Egypt. And then we get to verses 17 through 43, and we really have a pickle with this, this whole God stuck in the temple theology. And it's literally that God is running all over the Middle East and northern Africa with Moses. He's in Egypt, Midian, the wilderness, and then Canaan. Everywhere Moses goes, everywhere the people go, God is right there with them. And that's that's super cool. But you know that's not even the super coolest part. The super coolest part is the very first time they meet, and and Stephen references this in Exodus 3. If you remember, God meets Moses on the top of, of a mountain, right? And As is true with most mountains, this one is outside, okay? So, they are outside on top uh, top of the mountain, and um, then God speaks to Moses, and if you remember what he says, he says, Moses, what I need you to do in this moment is quick, build a temple as fast as you can, because we need a holy, I need to talk to you, and I can't talk to you out here, we've got to have a holy place. That's not what he says. He says, Moses, take off your sandals, because the place you're standing is holy ground, Just like the song, you know, the old praise and worship song? Wherever the Lord is, that place is holy. And then finally, we have David. God is clearly with King David all throughout his journeys and his adventures, and there is no temple during David's time. Now, God is in a structure during David's time, but it just so happens it's a tabernacle. Does anybody know what a tabernacle is? Uh, it, it starts with a T and ends with an int. Uh, it's a tent. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tent. So, so, he makes his point and then he sums up his entire temple point with this in Acts 7, 48 through 50. Our God, the Most High, doesn't live in houses made by us. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? The point, God is not under house arrest in the temple. God is not chained to a post. He's he's not not on a leash held in place by the temple. God is not only present and available in the temple. That theology does not fly. And and it's just brilliant that Stephen has used their heroes and their history to make this point. And again, I love what Stott says right here. He says, you know, look, the point of all of this is that our God, he is God on the move. He is God on the march, always calling his people to fresh adventures and going with them wherever he sends them. That's the point of the temple. Now, the law defense is much shorter. And if you forgive me, it's, it's a lot sharper, okay? Here's what he says about the law in 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, ouch! You stiff-necked rascals, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised, impure, unable, un- un- unable to feel, unsensitive. You are just like your ancestors, always resisting the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet? Now, what's a prophet? A prophet is a law bringer, right? They bring the law. Was there ever a law bringer that your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming Messiah, the one who is the fulfillment of the law. Who, by the way, you yourselves betrayed and murdered. That's all he has to say about the law except for this. You received the law that was given through angels but you yourselves have not obeyed it. That's all he has to say about the law. And by the way, when I was growing up, okay, if you wanted to fight, now times have changed, so we don't do this anymore, right? But if you wanted to get in a fight in the schoolyard, you know, you could go about it a lot of different ways, but there were two words you could say if you really wanted to fight. Those two words were your mama, okay? This, this is a spiritual your mama. Temple and law, here it is. And so Stephen has made his case He's given his closing argument. So, what is the verdict gonna be? I mean, he's been honest, he's spoken the truth, he's spoken in love, he's represented God beautifully. All of these guys apparently work for God. Surely they'll come to their senses. Surely, in the face of all of this, the you know, the the long lesson and the sharp words, their hearts are gonna melt. They'll break. Well, the verdict comes back, and the verdict is death. They pick up stones and they begin to pummel Stephen. They begin to stone him to death. But not before Stephen prays three phrases. And if these phrases remind you of anything else, like Jesus on the cross, you've got it. Here's what he says. Verse 59, as he is being stoned, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus prayed the same thing to God. In verse 60, Lord do not hold this sin against them. You remember Jesus' words, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. But then we have verse 56, and I'll go back here where Stephen says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Glorious moment, but there's a question that comes right here in light of that one verse. Why in the world... Would Stephen talk about Jesus' posture and position? You know, is he just saying, hey, you know, I'm looking up and here's what I see, thought y'all might want to know. Is it just random? Or, or is there significance to this? I believe there's great significance to Jesus Christ standing at the moment of Stephen's death. And I think the best way to let you know what it is, is not to talk about it, but it's to show it. Um, I have a movie clip that I want to show you that I think captures why Jesus is standing. It's so only 63 seconds long. It's from a, a little movie probably no one's heard about but me and a book nobody's heard about but me. But the movie and the book are called To Kill a Mockingbird. Has anyone ever heard that one? Oh, yeah, one, one of the greatest ever. Certainly, I, I think the greatest book of uh, a, a Tree Grows in Brooklyn, To Kill a Mockingbird, Fight It Out, one of the two greatest books of the, of the 20th century. But in the scene that we're going to watch, um, Atticus Finch, who is a white Caucasian lawyer, is defending Tom Robinson, the black man, uh, African-American, and um, in case you've never seen the movie before, Tom is innocent. The charges against him are ridiculous. They don't stand up for two seconds in cross-examination, but see, here's the thing. This is before civil rights, and racism rules the day, and and as we're watching the movie, everybody knows it's going to end badly, Okay, you could, there's just so much prejudice, there's no way Tom Robinson is getting off. And, and, and just before the scene ends, Tom Robinson is convicted wrongly. And he's led away, and yet here's Atticus Finch alone in the courtroom except for people on the balcony, and he, he, he's given 110%. You know, you talk about, are you sure you want to die on that hill? He's just committed career suicide, reputation suicide, but he, he's done the right thing given 110% and here he is in in the courtroom packing up his things and this is how it ends. You got that for me up there? That scene skewers my heart every time I watch it. But it's pretty obvious when you see the, the scene, what's going on there. These people are standing up not because Atticus has won the case, because he's just lost it. They're standing up out of respect. It's a job well done. is a fight worth fighting. The first step in something much greater, which would come years later, which is civil rights. And I believe in Acts chapter 7, That is precisely why Jesus Christ stands up for Stephen. To say, Stephen, this is a job well done. You've done exactly what you're supposed to do, even though it ends in death. And see, what happens to so many of us when we read this passage is we go, okay, I get it. I mean, but why? Why does it have to end like this? I mean, God can do it a thousand different ways. He's limitless in his power. Why in the world does he allow a man to die? I mean, it it looks like the enemy's even winning here. Why would God do this? And the answer is very simple, but it's profound. It is because in the kingdom of God, life comes out of death. This is the way God has set it up, that God always brings life out of death. And y'all know that is exactly what happens with Stephen. He dies at the end of seven. We're all, you know, got the Kleenex out for good reason. We're wiping our faces. But do you know what we read in Acts chapter one, or Acts chapter 8, 1 through 4? We see the church launched out. Now, the church is launched out through persecution. Nobody likes that. But it says that, that the apostles were scattered because of great persecution. Because Stephen dies and the fury just takes off. The church is scattered Everywhere, they are fleeing for their lives. But it says in verse 4, everywhere they go, everywhere they went, they preached the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the start of missions. They preach the gospel everywhere they go. So what do we take home from all of this? Well, I, I, a couple things I want to offer to you. First of all, for everyone in this room who has asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior from this passage with all of that that temple teaching in the background, even watching Stephen dying in the presence of God. I want you to know this. God is with you wherever you go as a believer. Psalm 139 says this, 7 through 10. It says, God, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If if I go down and make my bed in the heart of the sea, okay, I guess it's, uh, you know, if I could live at the bottom of the ocean, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. You will lead me to that place. Your right hand will hold me fast. In Christ Jesus, you are never alone. You can't outrun God, you can't hide from God, you're never abandoned by God, you're never cast aside from God. Even when you and I would say, you know what, I feel far from home right now, God is home for us. That's how it is when it comes to us and God. We need to get that. But see, the other part of this is is this principle as well, to enjoy every ounce of that principle. God is with us. God will never leave us, okay, and here it comes. You know it was coming. To enjoy this kind of life with God, we have to die. We ourselves have to die. To enter into the kingdom of God, every one of us has to die to sin by asking Jesus Christ to to come in to cleanse us, to be Lord, to be God, to be Savior. This whole thing starts with us dying. But y'all, even after that moment of salvation, even after that moment, we have to continue to die to our selfish desires. That's what growing up in Jesus Christ is all about is there's still dark spots. There's still places that are weak. We got to continue to, as Scripture says, die to our flesh, die to ourselves. The synagogue of the freedmen shows us something else, and it's that as believers, sometimes we, we, we got to die to religion. You know what religion is? That's when you start living more for the rules and the laws than the one who gave the laws. What they show us is, look, out, uh, apart from the lawgiver, without the lawgiver, there's no life at all in the law. And I know talking, just saying all these things about death today, you know, and we have to die, that's a hard sell today. In a culture where convenience and comfort are king and queen, you know? I mean, man, that, that, uh, we're talking America here, right? But it's still true. Journeying with God, journeying for God means the death of our flesh. It means discomfort. It means inconvenient. In other words, we got to swap theme songs, you know? The old theme song, you even referred to this, is My Way. You know, the old Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Well, you might as well go ahead and pack that one up, and there's a new one. It's I Surrender, or I Surrender All. Because, brothers and sisters, the Christian life is first about death. We begin a process of death when we say yes to Jesus Christ. We're like him in his death. But you know what else we're like him in? We're like him in his life. We are raised up into his life, the beginnings of a new heart, a new life, a new mind. And I tell you, in the time that follows as we journey with God, there will be a whole lot more death in our lives, but there will be much, much, much more life. Death will come first, and abundant life will